Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we are going to talk about opiates. You may remember when I did an episode on IV induction medications, I did not cover opiates. I said we'd do a separate episode on opiates. This is actually going to be the first in what will probably be a two-part series on opiate medications. So we'll cover quite a bit over those two episodes. Today we'll do part one. And during this part, what we'll cover is the classification of opioids, the basic way we think about them, a lot of the different effects that they have on different parts of the body and on different systems. And then when I come back and do the second part of this topic, We will cover the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, different uses of opiates, and we'll look at the different uh, mixed agonist-antagonist compounds, and we'll look at how opiates interact with other medications. And all in all, that will be our coverage of opiates. Remember, check out the website at acrac.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments on the various episodes and see any other postings we may have. And also, for most of the episodes, I post slides there as well in case when you're done with your run or your bike ride where you're listening to this, you want to come home and actually check out some of the slides. Also, we love to get comments on the posts, on the episodes, so that everyone who is listening and checking out the website can learn from different people's points of view. And in case there's any mistakes that you catch, please let me know. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at ACRAC, A-C-C-R-A-C dot com, or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. Also, remember to join our mailing list, the ACRAC mailing list, which you can join by going to ACRAC.com and clicking on the link in the upper right-hand corner that says join our mailing list. Through that mailing list, you'll get notifications whenever there's a new episode. And, of course, if there's anything particularly interesting happening in anesthesia, and critical care medicine, I will send it out via that mailing list. Before we get started, I will tell you this is a new version of GarageBand. GarageBand is the program on Mac that I use to record these episodes, and this is a new version of GarageBand. It's very different than the old version, and I definitely don't know exactly what all of these buttons do. So if this sounds strange, definitely if it only is playing in one ear, please let me know. Send me an email. If it sounds strange if there's weird echoes. Uh, if anything is, is strange about this recording, uh, please let me know, and I will see if I can figure out how to fix it on this new version of GarageBand. Some of the staff in the ICU here where I work, the cardiac surgical ICU here at Johns Hopkins, have decided to run the Celtic Solstice five-mile race on December 17th in Baltimore. And In what I may come to regret as a not well-thought-out decision, I have agreed to join them. This is a uh, race that could be very cold. In fact, I don't remember exactly what the dates of the Snowmageddon were last year, but running through that blizzard was not fun. I tried it, and if there's a similar blizzard uh, for this race, it could be a real challenge. On the other hand, 
Supposedly, they have uh, spiced heated wine at the finish line, which should certainly be a nice way to end. So if you're in Baltimore and you're free on December 17th, maybe think about coming out and running this race. It's only five miles and supposedly a lot of fun. If it's really cold, at least we will suffer together. Okay, without further ado, let's start the main topic for the day, opiate medications. All right, so let's start with the classification of opioids. So there's really three main categories. There's the naturally occurring opioids, and this includes morphine, codeine, and then also papaverin and thebane. But uh, the ones obviously more commonly known are the morphine and codeine. Then there are the semi-synthetic, and that's heroin and dihydromorphone and morphinone, which also, again, not really well, well um, uh, known. And then uh, some others that are in the thebane derivative category, atorphin and buprenorphine. And buprenorphine is probably the only one of those you've heard of. And then the synthetic category, completely synthetic, and there uh, are a variety. The ones that you will uh, have known the most are in the phenylpiperidine series, and that includes meperidine, fentanyl, sufentanyl, alfentanyl, and remifentanyl. Uh, there are a variety of others, and I'll put them in the slides. The only other one uh, would be in the diphenylpropalamine series, and that would be methadone. But other than that, there's uh, a variety, and you certainly don't need to know them all for your boards, just that there are these categories and then, of course, the most common ones. So the, there are three main opiate receptors, opioid receptors, and that you should know, uh, and those are the mu, delta, and kappa receptors. There uh, is a lot of research and, and uh, a lot of emerging ideas about different subtypes of these receptors, but for anything that you're going to need to know anytime soon, it's going to be just the three main receptors, and they are found throughout the body, supraspinal, spinal, in the gastrointestinal tract, in uh, the um, different uh, parts of the secretory system, the endocrine system, uh, and, of course, in the central nervous system. As you probably know, opioids are agonists at the receptors that were, of course, not designed for opiates. Humans weren't designed to have receptors that would bind morphine, but they were designed with receptors for endogenous ligands. And the ones uh, for each receptor, the most common, so delta, that's enkephalin. For the mu receptor, that's beta-endorphin. And for kappa receptor, dynorphin. So enkephalin, beta-endorphin, and dynorphin are the endogenous ligands that uh, these opiate receptors were built to receive. And there are a variety of substances, both natural, as you heard, and synthetic, that will do the same thing. A lot of the placebo effect that is seen in a variety of pain medicine studies is probably due to the release of endogenous substances like beta-endorphin. So the mechanism of action for opiates is that they activate the receptors, these mu, uh, primarily mu, but also kappa and delta receptors, and it leads to expression of G-protein. So these are G-protein-coupled receptors. And you may remember, thinking back on the pharmacology, that it inhibits adenylate cyclase, which then reduces cyclic AMP. And then this causes a reduction in the voltage-gating calcium channels and an activation of the inwardly rectifying potassium channel. So what does this mean? It means that it reduces the neuronal excitability. So by, by agonizing, by activating these receptors, which then are coupled to G-proteins, you get a 
hyperpolarization, a reduced excitability of the neurons. And so what, what you get then is both direct inhibition of ascending transmission of pain signals, so from the spinal cord, the dorsal horn, and also the activation of pain-modulating descending circuits from the midbrain through the medulla and the periaqueductal gray to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So both ways, use of opiates, activation of mu and kappa and delta receptors does two things to treat pain, which is, of course, the primary use of opiates. It both inhibits the ascending transmission, so the pain signal getting to the brain, and then it activates pain-modulating circuits coming down. Both ways will help reduce the sensation of pain. In addition to pain control, opiates also cause mood alterations. And this comes from the dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens and produces a feeling of euphoria in the reward center. It also causes an inhibition of panic, fear, and anxiety pathways in the locus ceruleus. So between these two, the dopamine release in the reward center in the nucleus accumbens and the inhibition of bad feelings in the locus ceruleus, you get the euphoria that makes opiates an attractive drug for abuse. So what do these drugs actually do in the CNS? They cause analgesia, obviously, also drowsiness and changes in mood, mental clouding. You'll hear patients all the time refer to feeling like they they're, have a cloudy brain when they take opiates. But usually it does not cause a loss of consciousness. Now, obviously, if you give enough, a large enough dose of an opiate, you can cause a loss of consciousness. But that's not the standard approach. It's not the standard action of opiates, unlike, for example, propofol, which obviously causes, as one of its main mechanisms of action, causes loss of consciousness. Patients who take opiates for pain will say that the pain is still there, but they're more comfortable. It's also sometimes described as the fact that the pain is there, but it doesn't bother them as much. And opiates, of course, are better for nociceptive pain, by which we mean pains transmitted through intact neurons, than it is for neuropathic pain, which comes from damaged neural structures. And this is why we won't talk about this in this episode, but this is why we see things like gabapentin that are more effective for neuropathic pain, whereas opiates are not very effective. Now, you will see all the time people attempting to use opiates for neuropathic pain, but it's not a good idea, it's not effective, and the side effects are going to predominate in that kind of a situation. Opiates will affect the MAC of inhaled anesthetics. So fentanyl can reduce the MAC of isoflurane by up to 80%. It can reduce the MAC of SIVO by about 60 to 75%. Interestingly, epidural fentanyl actually has more of an effect than intravenous fentanyl, which you wouldn't imagine, but people will actually wake up at higher concentrations of iso when they're given IV fentanyl than when they're given epidural fentanyl at the same rate, which is, I think, very interesting. So in other words, you get more of an effect. You can lower your ISO more and still have someone asleep when they're getting an infusion of epidural fentanyl, whereas at that same concentration, they will wake up with IV fentanyl. And this goes, and we'll talk about this a little more later, but also to the point that an infusion of epidural fentanyl does not produce much in the way of a neuraxial effect. It really is almost completely systemically absorbed. Now, there must be some other effect for this to be true, that it actually lowers MAC even more than IV fentanyl. But for the most part, an infusion of epidural fentanyl is not any more effective or doesn't produce any different effect 
than the pain relief that you get from IV fentanyl because it just diffuses into the tissue. And again, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. There's also a ceiling effect here. So after a certain dose, after you reach a certain dose of opiate, you won't lower the MAC anymore. So you can't actually lower the MAC by 100% and produce MAC just by giving opiates. You can only lower it by a ceiling of about 80% for isoflurane, 60 to 75% for sevoflurane. And at that point, you've reached the maximum effect. And the same thing is true with the EEG effect. So unlike inhaled anesthetics, where if you keep increasing isoflurane, for example, you can eventually get a flatline EEG, that will not happen with opiates. You will get a dose-dependent reduction in the activity on an EEG, but there will be a ceiling effect. You won't be able to achieve a flatline. And so for evoked potentials in neuromonitoring, it's actually a fairly good medication. It won't affect sensory or motor evoked potentials. They do, however, affect auditory evoked potentials, but so does basically anything as auditory evoked potentials are the most sensitive to interference from any kind of anesthetic agent or pain uh, analgesic agent. In terms of their effect on cerebral blood flow, usually opiates will cause a small decrease in the cerebral metabolic rate and an ICP or not affect them at all. So they don't have a big effect. They do cause a decrease in blood flow when combined with nitrous, and they preserve the cerebral perfusion pressure, mostly because they have a minimal effect on systemic blood pressure. Opiates can cause neuroexcitation, especially meparidine, and high doses can cause seizures. And of course, the famous effect of opiates causing constriction of the pupils is through an excitatory uh, impact on the parasympathetic nerve leading to the pupils. Another effect of opiates that you may know well if you've ever tried to push uh, a large dose of remifentanil or even sometimes can happen with fentanyl or sufentanil or alfentanil is opioid-induced rigidity. The mechanism of of this is not fully understood. It's definitely not a direct action on muscle fibers because it can be prevented or treated with non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. So it is definitely interacting through the nerve. It can also be prevented or treated with benzos such as Versed. So if you do this, and and I actually had this as a resident, my attending pushed some remifentanil and uh, we could not ventilate the patient. The patient was completely rigid. And at the time we gave uh, rocuronium and intubated which is probably the thing you're going to do in the operating room, and that's fine, assuming that you feel like you can intubate the patient. But uh, if you're not sure or if you're in another situation where you can't intubate right away, you can try giving some benzodiazepine, which is capable of treating this opioid-induced rigidity. Of course, another well-known side effect of opiates is the puritis that they can cause. Common misconception is that this is just from the histamine release that Uh, opiates such as morphine can cause. But it turns out that even non-histamine-releasing opiates can still cause puritis. And so it's probably mediated through the mu receptor. It is reversed by naloxone, and it can be reduced by a variety of things, many of which you probably haven't thought of trying. So Zofran, as it turns out, can reduce the puritis from opiates. Kappa agonists such as pentazacine can reduce it, which is interesting, and again, lends credence to the idea that it's probably through the mu receptor. Droperidol, propofol, and gabapentin all have been shown to have some efficacy in reducing the opiate-induced puritis. Of course, 
Opiates have a well-known effect on the respiratory drive, and this can be both beneficial and detrimental. So how can it be beneficial? It turns out opiates can prevent coughing. So there are obviously opiates that are sometimes put in cough medicine to try to suppress cough, and they're very effective at suppressing cough. A, interestingly, a rapid bolus of an opiate can actually cause cough. Now, what we see more often, I think, is that nose itching. So when we give fentanyl in the operating room, we'll often see a patient who feels like they need to reach up under the mask and itch their nose, and that's a common effect too. But evidently, a fair number of people will actually also have the need to cough after a rapid bolus administration of fentanyl. This can be attenuated by giving lidocaine, and that may be why we don't see the cough as much in the operating room because we often give IV lidocaine as well. Obviously, opiates can depress upper airway, tracheal, and lower respiratory tract reflexes, and this is why we use it often to prevent the bucking and coughing associated with intubation. And to have this effect, we often underdose. We often give it both in too small a dose and too close to intubation. So you really have to give, for example, fentanyl about three to five minutes before intubation, and at doses of at least three maybe even close to five mics per kilo to really have that full effect in terms of preventing the sympathetic response and the coughing and bucking and laryngeal response to intubation. Now, fentanyl does have some anti-muscarinic and antihistaminergic properties, and so fentanyl may actually help bronchospasm uh, as part of a multimodal attempt to prevent it. You might think about using fentanyl with ketamine as a way to really cause uh, reduction in the risk of bronchospasm if someone is at high risk. In terms of harmful effects of the respiratory depressive effects of opiates, of course, they decrease the response to hypercapnia and hypoxia, and that's mediated through the mu receptor action in the brainstem respiratory center. And so people will not start breathing at the same level of carbon dioxide that they would have. So that's the decrease in the, in the response to hypercapnia. And then they will also not have the same response to hypoxia to cause a respiratory drive. Interestingly, apnea comes before unconsciousness with opiates. And we talked about this before, how it takes quite a high dose to cause unconsciousness. But apnea will come first. And so this is where you may see, if you've woken someone up on a low dose of remifentanil, that they may breathe if you tell them to but they won't breathe on their own. And so you sometimes will have this interesting experience of saying to a patient, take a deep breath, and they will. But if you don't tell them to keep doing it, they won't breathe. Cumulative doses of fentanyl above about 20 mics per kilo are pretty effective in being predictive for the need for post-op ventilation. So once you get that high, you've depressed the respiratory drive to an extent that it really is going to be depressed for many hours. And so if you end up in that range, more than 20, 20 to 50 mics per kilo over the course of a case, you need to think hard about keeping the patient intubated. There was also a phenomenon of delayed or recurrent respiratory depression, recurring respiratory depression, which can happen after a patient has, seems to have recovered from opiate-induced respiratory depression. Now, if you've used Narcan, this can be because the Narcan wears off. But even in the absence of Narcan, what can happen is that a lot of the opiate can have spread out and gone into the tissues and into the muscle tissues, for example, and then with increased release from the muscle into the plasma. For example, that can come with rewarming, shivering, excess motion of the patient. More of that 
opiate can be released out of the muscle tissue into the plasma and actually cause respiratory depression where it wasn't causing it before, even in the absence of having given any additional opiate. Now, the effect of opiates on respiratory depression is greatly affected by a variety of things, most importantly, obviously, the dose, but also older age. So older people need a much smaller dose to cause respiratory depression, and the presence of other CNS depressants, renal insufficiency, hypocapnia, and the reduction of hepatic blood flow because this will decrease the clearance of the opiate. So being aware of these things will help you avoid causing respiratory depression when you don't want to. Opiates have a variety of cardiovascular effects, so they are pretty hemodynamically stable unless a patient is really dependent on high sympathetic tone. And we see this in the operating room when we have a patient who is in a lot of pain and we give some fentanyl and they then get hypotensive. And the reason was that that pain was so stimulating that it was causing sympathetic tone. It was causing catecholamine release. And then when the pain is gone, the catecholamine release stops and the patient can get hypotensive. But other than that, usually opiates are fairly hemodynamically stable. They can cause bradycardia, and that's through a central vagal nucleus stimulation, except meparidine is the exception, which can cause tachycardia. The bradycardia of opiates can be exacerbated when they're used along with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, so be careful with that. Of course, we do still use them all the time. You just have to know that you, will, you may face uh, increased risk of bradycardia. Fentanyl, though this is not true of morphine, but fentanyl uh, has been shown to perhaps have some mild positive inotropic effects. They, opiates can provide an effect that is similar to ischemic preconditioning meaning they can affect the my, uh, protect the myocardium and reduce infarct size. So ischemic preconditioning is really interesting if you don't know about it. it. Basically, it is that if the heart or, as it turns out, any part of the body, which is called remote ischemic preconditioning, is made ischemic for a short amount of time, then it is protective against future ischemia. So one interesting study looked at a just a tourniquet on an arm that was cycled, causing ischemia of the lower arm, several times prior to surgery, and then looked at the effect on the myocardium of cardiac surgery and whether there was uh, better outcomes, and found, I think, a, it was a trend toward, so not a, not a statistically significant, but a trend toward an effect. And there have been uh, studies showing that ischemic preconditioning, at least direct ischemic preconditioning, can protect against infarct, can reduce infarct size. And so, uh, as it turns out, Opiates can have a similar effect as ischemic preconditioning to protecting against future infarcts. Probably this has something to do with mu receptors in the actual myocardium. Again, it's not well understood. Also, opiates maintain the oxygen supply-to-demand ratio, and by reducing catechol release, they may actually reduce the tachycardia that can be associated with pain, and therefore that may be another mechanism by which they reduce infarct size by reducing the oxygen demand of the heart. Opiates can also enhance the oculocardiac reflex. So using opiates during, for example, a retrobulbar block placement or any retrobulbar surgery, you may see an even 
more striking bradycardic response from that oculocardiac reflex, so be prepared for that. Morphine and meperidine can cause histamine release, and they are the big uh, offenders when it comes to that, and that can lead to hypotension via vasodilation. So in terms of uh, the hypotensive effect of morphine and meperidine, it's through that histamine release. Opiates can also have some endocrine effects, so they reduce the stress response by inhibiting the HPA axis, the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis, Morphine and fentanyl actually can prevent ACTH release and therefore cortisol secretion, and they can reduce surgically induced hyperglycemia. So these are some additional effects. In terms of tolerance and hyperalgesia, so tolerance develops from long-term use, but it can also happen with high-dose short-term remifentanil, meaning high-dose 0.3 mics per kilo per minute or higher, you can actually get kind of acute development of tolerance and acute development of hyperalgesia, meaning even worse pain from a stimulus than you would have had without the opiate. This can be prevented or attenuated by the use of NMDA blockers. So ketamine being probably the one we think of the most, but nitrous has some anti-NMDA receptor action, methadone does, and so does magnesium. So think about maybe using, for example, a fairly benign magnesium drip if you're going to be using high-dose remifentanil, and that may help prevent that acute tolerance and hyperalgesia that you can see. Interestingly, Zofran and propofol may also help attenuate the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And so if you're using propofol and remi, you may actually be fairly well off. And of course, almost everybody gets Zofran, which also is good to know that that can help attenuate that problem. Tolerance leads to a lower pain threshold and then, as I said, hyperalgesia. And so if you start to get a tolerance to opiates, or if you have somebody who comes in with a tolerance to opiates, they may actually have a lower pain threshold. They may experience hyperalgesia from some stimulus. And of course, as we know, people who have tolerance at baseline are probably going to need much higher doses, or even to think about using adjuncts like a ketamine infusion, or some places have a ketamine PCA or can add ketamine to a PCA, for these patients with that NMDA blockade, which can really help reduce the amount of opiate that they need to achieve pain relief. Some additional effects of opiates that you should know, they cause urinary retention, they can cause nausea and vomiting, they can inhibit gastric emptying, they can cause ileus and constipation. The nausea and vomiting that are caused by opiates can obviously be attenuated by antiemetics, so Zofran, for example, Decadron, Propofol also can serve as an antiemetic. And interestingly, a low-dose naloxone infusion, and by low-dose I mean about 0.25 mics per kilo per hour. Let me just emphasize that. That's mics per kilo per hour uh, of the naloxone infusion. And that won't affect the analgesic effect of the opiates, but it can help attenuate the nausea and vomiting. A commonly uh, talked-about effect of opiates is spasm of the sphincter of OD. But it turns out that that's not really real. What happens is you can get some mildly increased biliary ductal pressure from opiates, but there isn't really any evidence of sphincter spasm with opiates. uh, Opiates have almost no effect on liver function. Uh, They do cross the placenta, and they can cause neonatal depression, but there are not teratogens. So as long as you are able to potentially support the breathing of the neonate, it's not a problem. 
and they can attenuate increases in ICP that come from intubation and from succinylcholine, interestingly. There is emerging data about the effect of opiates on immunity and cancer. So opiates do suppress natural killer cells, and they are associated with a greater rate of cancer recurrence, probably because they cause some immunosuppression and also some direct stimulatory effects on cancer cells. And this is why if you have ERAS pathways at your hospital, early recovery after surgery, one of the big emphasis in these ERAS pathways is on trying to limit or completely eliminate the use of opiates. And that's why the ERAS pathways calls for, call for epidurals and alternative uh, pain medications, complementary pain medications such as gabapentin, NSAIDs, magnesium, and or lidocaine. All right. We're going to stop there for today. And the second part of this uh, talk, which will be a new episode, we'll come back and talk about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of opiates. And we'll look at some of the uh, different opiate agonists and the roles they play, the different uses. And then we'll look at the uh, mixed agonist antagonists and uh, some drug interactions to be aware of with opiates. We'll do that next time. That is all for today for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Please go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave comments. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you have any topics you'd particularly like to see covered. And you can always e leave comments there or email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for doing all that you do. Remember, what you do out there every day is really important and valued.